This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. The title, Lies My Preacher Told Me, was something that worked out with the publisher. Uh, We kicked around some different things, but uh, in the end, I I was influenced a lot by this well-known book on American history, uh, American history textbooks, particularly at the high school and college level by James Lowen called Lies My Teacher Told Mm -hmm. Me. And he had great success with that book. He sold, I don't know, a couple million copies. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that by we'll, taking, we'll get you there. This will be, <laughs> this will be your first million from this book. Yeah, so. hey, let's go. Um, so I, I I use that title partly because um, to kind of give a nod to to Lowen. And uh, Lowen says actually, you know, he's not mad at teachers. He's mad at really history textbooks. Is what he's mm. mad at. And and he actually said if he had to write it more precisely, it would be lies 70% of my history teachers told mm. me. Not, not every Fair enough. So he's Fair not enough. really going after teachers and per se. And, and that's, I mean, in the book, I say the same thing. I'm not really trying to pick at preachers. I actually have been blessed in my own life and church experience with a number of great preachers and Sunday school teachers and things like that, and uh, who've made me who I am. Um, the good parts of me, I should say. I should attribute <laughs> to them, not right. the bad parts. And so I'm not meaning to kind of pick at preachers per se, but but it is kind of a helpful entree into the fact that somebody, and this is the first first chapter, it's uh, the first chapter's lie, somebody taught us about the Old Testament. And that happens to come more and more these days through the preached word, uh, mm-hmm. through the sermonic moment, because the Sunday school kind of uh, movement has had its day. Uh, and I think that's in decline and maybe small groups have replaced it, but small groups are, are oftentimes in my experience, more socially based or prayer based and not necessarily scripture based. So someone we, we've, uh, we've taken these, adopted these lies or what I call in the book, mistruths about scripture. We've, we've, we've inherited them and picked them up from somewhere along the line. And that's what, that's what the book is ultimately about. Hmm. You know, uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I was actually a children's pastor for eight years. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, which most people are shocked. <laughs> They're like, who, who let him around children? <laughs> but um, <laughs> These were high-level kids, probably. Were- yeah, uh, this was uh, infants all the way through uh, junior high, I guess. Yes, but um, right. one of the things I learned very quickly in that job, well, like it took me three years, but that's quick for me, is... Um, <laughs> I think there was in in the back of my mind, I had an MDiv and, and I think like, I thought, I think I honestly thought this is a little beneath me. Like, Oh, I'll yeah. do this. Right. I'll do, I'll yeah. do children kind of put my stripes in. Uh, right, right, right. right. And, uh, and then I, I, I very quickly realized that actually you need a lot of biblical understanding and theological savvy to work with mm-hmm. kids. Um, and in that, in some ways we probably need our most biblically, uh, literate people in front of the kids. And wh- one of the reasons that this came to attention to me is I realized I was teaching adults Sunday school at the same time. And with adults, you could say something incorrect or a little bit off and then you can come back next week and be like, you know what? I don't right. know what I was thinking. Okay, <laughs> just scratch that. Let's move on. 
Um, but with children, it kind of locks in like if right. you, cause you, you usually do some big object lesson where you create an imaginative moment that they enter and that carries with them for the rest of their life. And so I totally. realized this is a very dicey moment. It, it, it kind of is like the sermon, the weight of the sermon in a sense that it sticks. It's more, it's a more sticky teaching, uh, for true, most kids. True. And, and, and what we learn in these formative moments of Christian faith and practice and at formative times of development um, these, these do kind of remain with us. They're the, they're the things that we remember. And that's why I agree. I mean, I think getting into the, the minds and hearts of children is really the key to the survival of the, of scripture as a kind of mm. language of faith, um, which we could talk about and, you know, at length as well. But I, I think <laughs> I was, I was impressed that, uh, well, two story. I mean, one was my own professor, Patrick Miller, I remember just being impressed one day when he sort of set off in passing. He wasn't bragging about it or anything that he and his wife, Marianne, both of them now of blessed memory were, had just agreed to teach the fifth grading, fifth grader uh, Sunday school class at their church. And I'm like, this is Patrick Miller, like in my Mm. mind, one of the best of all time biblical scholars teaching the fifth grade, you know, Sunday school. And uh, another uh, important person in my life, John Stallsmith, my former pastor in, in uh, Atlanta, began at that church as the children's pastor. Mm-hmm. And now he's the head lead pastor, and he still insists on preaching to the children's uh, service on, on Wednesdays because mm-hmm. he just finds that it's such an helpful exercise in you know explaining things and making them accessible and whatnot. And so kudos to you for being there. Well, I, it wasn't my choice. It's what the elders asked me to do. And I now look back and see how God used it uh, to sharpen me. But yeah, and me and a friend eventually came up with the the rule, like we just would never trust anybody who's never taught children. Because <laughs> they go. level you out so quickly, right? Yeah, seriously. Right. Um, so what are, what are some examples of these lies that aren't necessarily lies, um, right. but where they really mess us up in some kind of um, our, our scriptural imagination, I guess I could say. Well, there's, there's, I, I, I was limited to 10 um, and it was kind of hard to, to know which ones to include. And I think there's some that kind of bleed into each other. Hmm. Um, there's, uh, I have, for instance, one on the Old Testament, God is mean, dot, 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 really mean. Right, right. And then the next one is the Old Testament is hyper-violent. I, I think those kind of go together. But um, I start with, uh, the, the ones I start and end with, I think, are really kind of crucial uh, and and massive ones. And so the first mistruth I call uh, the Old Testament is, is quote-unquote, someone else's mail. Um, right, and then the the last mistruth was is that what really matters is that quote everything is about Jesus, um, oh. and I, I think those two, the beginning and end, are in some ways the more con- most controversial of the of the ten, and they're also really important as a result. Um, so I have in front of me this other book, Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible, that just came out. Oh, cool! And the. Uh, and the last chapter is called Christ is the center spelled Britishly is the center of the Christian Bible. Yeah. Uh, and I learned this in my Christ center preaching. I was literally the name of the class was Christ center preaching. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I think when people hear this kind of, you know, is Jesus actually the center of the Bible or they hear you say, 
hey, the Old Testament has this specific place on its own. Um, How do you deal with the Jesus question, I guess? Just put it in macroscopic perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's the the difficulty, isn't it, Drew? Why do you want to ask me the difficult question? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like like I got an expert in the room. I should just go (laughs) ahead. What I say to people is, you know, look, I'm a Christian, right? I'm ordained. I'm an ordained Methodist elder in North Georgia Conference. Methodist. I was initially ordained, uh, ordained in the uh, Church of the Nazarene, uh, which is the denomination I grew up in. Um, so I'm a Christian. I'm I'm not I'm not Jewish. <laughs> you know, I'm not a rabbi or anything like that. Right. I, I am a Christian. I you know I I say the creed every day uh, and all the rest. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, uh, I have I have no problem with the Trinitarian understanding of of God. Well, I mean, other than that, it's very hard to figure out. To understand, right, right. right. The, the usual problems. Yeah. It's yeah. not like an egg, you know, it's just yeah. not, it's not like an egg. It's just that's it's too more like water, you know, but, but for me, you know, anything we say about these matters is going to seem trite. I mean, I, I think that for, for me, Christ is, you know, a central piece of God's revelatory work in the world, um, in Israel. And of course, also then for, for, for all those beyond and outside Israel as, as Paul particularly sees, I think with great clarity in his own ministry and his writing. Um, but for me, a kind of inordinate focus on the second member of the Trinity is problematic for a number of reasons. One is that, um, as far as I read scripture, even the new Testament doesn't do that. I mean, Mm. the new Testament is um, at pains to figure out how is Jesus related to God, right? How is, and, and this is the early church struggle. I mean, they had no qualms or problems with the God of Israel. Um, but the question is, how does Christ figure into that? And, you know, it's the hard won um, achievement of the, of the early centuries of, of the Christian church to, to, to work this out and to coin the term Trinity for the first time. And, and to work out the Trinitarian relations, um, all on the basis of Scripture, but also thinking hard about what Scripture implies if it doesn't quite say explicitly and what mm. Jesus means when Jesus says Father and all the rest. Um, but so for me, if, if, if I feel like I'm a, if I am a robust Trinitarian, which I think is Orthodox Christian theology, it's the, the three are one, that kind of doctrine to me, means that I don't have to have any sort of inordinate focus on just one member of the Trinity. And in fact, the, the early history of the church shows that inordinate attention to any one member to the exclusion right. of others ends up in heresy. You know, right. deep problems happen, monarchianism or modalism or whatever. So, um, so I, I really resist that Jesus is the center or whatever is Christ the center. Um, I just don't think that's really squares with scripture. Uh, the, 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 just the sheer weight of the old Testament in Christian scripture and the fact that the Christian church did not jettison it, but retained it. And when they, and when they were trying to figure out who Jesus was, they rolled their sleeves up and went to the old Testament. They Mm -hmm. didn't make up new stuff. They went back to the sources because they were all good, faithful Jews, of course. So the, the structure, the weighting, the givenness of the canon to me suggests uh, that it can't be focused solely on the last, you know, 27 books or even the, the, the four gospels or whatever. Um, but 
And then that's not even to talk about the Trinitarian relations where, you know, where one member of the Trinity acts according to Augustine, all members of the Trinity act. Right. So you don't need to find Jesus in every nook and cranny because Jesus is already there in the Godhead. And so is the Spirit. And to, to emphasize one over the others is a problem. And, and I think it's, it's a problem that's faced Christians in a number of ways. It, they mean well by it, but they're, they're not always aware of the problems that result. So a lot of people will hear what you just said, and it'll be difficult for some of us to not hear you casting Jesus to the side. Right. So he's either the center or you're throwing him out uh, right. as All if right. it's king of the hill. Right. And I hear you saying it's not preaching is not king of the hill. Uh, it's not the Trinitarian version of king of the hill. Whoever, you know, whoever's on top is the one we talk about. Um, That's right. I mean, I think that the, the Christian God, the God whom Christians adore and worship is triune in our belief. That's what the creed says. And, and that means, again, that God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit. And uh, so one doesn't need to emphasize one to the expense of the other. Um, yes, you know, Christians are after the Christ event. They're called Christians in Antioch, or whatever, for the mm -hmm. first time. But, they're, but they are not uh, somehow worshiping just one of those three members. Um, they are... They are attesting God at work in Israel, God at work in Christ, God at work in the Spirit. And, you know, I think the Spirit, except for, you know, Pentecostal service uh, kind of aspects, circles, uh, you know, pockets of Christ the Christian communion, uh, apart from Pentecostals, who really cares about the Spirit? You know what I mean? Why, are we, why do we neglect the Spirit? Well, we only, yeah. I'm ordained in the Presbyterian, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and John Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. So. There you go. <laughs> but go. it's Wesleyans I, who really, really brought about the Pentecostals. Uh, well, right. uh, you know, uh, we the Wesleyans had their had their um, yeah. place, but so do others. And but you're I mean, you're right. Who who is really is, actively talking about the Spirit? Yeah. Yeah. When and we and we think about it in terms of the kind of the economy of salvation. I mean, you can say God at work in Israel, then Christ at work and opening up to the Gentiles. But but we don't have access to Christ in the flesh anymore. We have access to Christ through the Spirit. So, I mean, really the spirit should be, should be getting more, more love than the spirit gets. I mean, right. I think in terms of, of, of how we are grafted into the story of Christ and the story of Israel. So I, yeah, I think, you know, I've, I get it with people who are nervous and maybe they think I'm, I'm soft on Jesus or something. I'm not trying to be soft on Jesus at all. In fact, I think, I think I truly believe that going to the old Testament can actually make one more Christian not less Christian. And the reason why I think that is because I think that's exactly what the New Testament authors did. Um, and if it worked for them, it could, might work for me too. Yeah. So, so more attention to the Old Testament, even sort of in itself, is not a move of dethroning Christ, uh, but rather it might actually make me appreciate the Christ event and the Spirit and the triune God even more than if I hadn't paid attention to that. It seems to me that. Um what you're trying to do is get us back into the conceptual world of the New Testament authors in some way. At least that's one stepping stone that we, we should always consider. Right. And uh, Michael Bird, who wrote the book I was just talking about, but mm -hmm. um, when we were talking to him, he said he does this exercise, which I thought was ingenious. 
which was for now for seminary students or div students, he says, um, all right, I want somebody here to uh, preach Christ from the scriptures. And from the scriptures, I mean the scriptures the apostles had. So do what they did, preach preach Christ from the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, he says, the, the look of panic comes over the, <laughs> because yeah. what are they going to, uh, and he said, you know, Isaiah 53, um, yeah. maybe Genesis 3.15, you know, they, they go to the really the token step points. But, right. um, but then he'll point out, well, that's not really where most of the New Testament authors went. That that those weren't their playbooks, um, right? And so there's some way in which they are letting the, the Hebrew Scriptures form their theological world that I think we we've lost touch with in some ways, um, mm-hmm. and maybe because we've overridden it with some other theological world uh, that we've entered. But is, am I hearing you correctly on that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I confess I don't fully know what it means sometimes when. When the Gospels, like Luke 24, or things from Acts, you know, these statements in Acts that, you know, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained right. to them the thing, right. I, I, you know, or he proved to them from Moses and the prophets that the Christ must suffer and die. You know, I, I confess I don't always know what that means or what they're talking about. I wish they would have like had a footnote, and, you know, <laughs> explained it a, a little helps. better. Um, I suspect you know, if, if you, you know, force me to say something about it, I suspect that they, that, that what that means in part is the theocentric nature of scripture and the fact that, that the early church and to to this day, Christian church believes Christ to be a part of, of the Godhead. And Mm. therefore you can preach Christ wherever the Godhead is mentioned. But, but, but I don't think that's actually what people mean by that now when they say that. I think what they mean by that now is that everything to use it to, to use a term that's that's used in some uh, some churches that every sermon has to walk walk it past the cross right mm-hmm. or every sermon has to somehow mention Jesus or everything in the Old Testament is somehow a prefiguration of Christ and I just don't think that's necessary I don't I don't think that one has to do that um, I think that even Jesus's own testimony in the Gospels I mean he says what he says in Luke twenty four but in Luke uh, 16, I think it is, with Lazarus. Is that right, 16, I think? Um, the rich man and Lazarus? Yes. He says, uh, you know, Jesus says things that, su- that, that, that suggest the complete self-sufficiency of the Old Testament. Right. Um, Abraham, in that parable, says to the rich man, uh, oh, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. Right. And the rich man says, no, but if someone comes back from the dead, they will believe. You know, So who are we talking about, really? We're talking about Jesus. Yeah, yeah I Jesus, love this and, statement. Right? And Abraham says, even if they don't believe most of the prophets, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead. You know, And that's just one text that you could lift up. That, that you know, yeah, there's Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus and beginning with Moses and the prophets. But there's also Luke 16, right? And so there's there are statements even in the New Testament that suggest the sufficiency of God's revelation. Now, does that somehow mean Jesus is insufficient or something? I don't think you have to think of it in that way. I think that's like a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think the Trinity works in a zero-sum game capacity. So uh, I think that's one way I would maybe try to respond. That might be more you know, too clever by half, but that's at least some things I think about. Well, I think one of the things you're flagging up is the styles of preaching or kind of soft demands that we expect out of preaching, like, oh, they didn't preach the gospel because they didn't tell me how desperately I need, I need to repent of my sins and right, right, have right. an altar call. Whatever you think needs to happen in a sermon, right. 
uh, you're, what you're actually doing, it sounds to me, is, is you're constructing somebody's view of the canon. Like yeah. what are actually the primary points? And I struggle with this with my students too, where I, I want to say like, look, don't you think Nahum or uh, Ezra or Joshua, don't you think like their world, their thoughts, the way they put the story together matters yeah, apart right. you know even before jesus even when they don't really i don't know if i don't know if joshua could have articulated in history what the messianic king judge prophet priest jesus would be right but are you saying he doesn't matter because he couldn't put that together um, yeah, yeah. and then you have this really tricky situation if you say something like that where you also have to say like you've said well the early church didn't necessarily have that all put together uh, right. for a few hundred years so right. does their struggle matter you know yeah um, great acts take time as nicholas lash says when i'm about mm. trinitarian doctrine great acts take time But, you know, I remember one time lecturing or talking about my, um, it was before my Old Testament's Dying book came out, but I was lecturing on it at a seminary and it seemed to be going pretty well, you know, and I was doing my song and dance about the importance of the Old Testament as a part of the language of faith. And all this. And afterwards, one of the students there came up and really pressed me in, in the way you did. Like, what's, what, what about Jesus, you know? And he, I remember, I can't remember what I said exactly, but he was, he was singularly unimpressed. And, and I, and I, and so whatever, you know, he had liked about my lectures, I think at that point, you know, it went south. But I, in retrospect, I, I think, um, you know, the Trinitarian thing for me is crucial. The canonical givenness is crucial. But another thing about it, and this is another one of my little pet, pet peeves or pet ponies I like to ride around the room, is that I, I think people, well-meaning and, and not, but mostly well-meaning, have an overly mechanistic and linear understanding of the way the testaments work. Mm-hmm. And I think if we could get, we could disabuse ourselves of this single narrative and single plot and story idea about scripture and move to something that's more plastic, more poetic, um, that would help. And that, that, that helps explain in a whole lot of ways, points of continuity, points of discontinuity, um, points of newness, points of just no newness at all, just straight up the same, you know, um, and, and, the, and the place of Christ is both new and, and not new. I think if we were, weren't thinking about this as just, you know, like a tale of two cities or, right, you know, right, Harry right. Potter, where you start in chapter one and you end at the end. And it's like, now I know, you know, if, if we had more, a kind of a flexibility dexterity about it, that would help. Yeah. And, and again, I think people might hear that and they'll say, Oh, so you think there's no store overarching story to scripture? You think there's no beginning, middle, and end? Um, and I would say there can be beginning, middle, and end, and it can still not be a story. I mean, poems have beginnings, middle, and ends. Right. So th- th- linearity by itself does not constitute story, in, yeah. in my humble opinion. I'm working on this as a book manuscript. It's going to take a minute to get it out, in part because you know I'm battling a juggernaut of, <laughs> of opinion it's, and and, it's an and industry. And, you know, it's like it is a massive industry and and it's and it's not all wrong but it, my point is just to say it's not all right either hmm. and um so i'm i'm happy for people to disagree as long as they think about it a little bit and as long as they realize that when they say the bible is a story they are imposing a generic construct on it that it does not itself have right. the bible it's in itself is not manifestly overtly or explicitly a narrative 
I think that is demonstrably fundamentally true. So yeah. that's my controversial throwdown for, for the listeners. They can well, complain. Even complain in to that, Drew Johnson, by the way. Don't complain to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I won't agree with you, but it, I'll ask you more questions. Um, yes, please. In, in that, um, you could. It seems to me like part of that industrial complex of the story of Scripture. You know, uh, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Um, what could be conceived of as a very simple, like uh, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word crutch here, but you know, just like people need little icons and, and tokens right. of things just to help them remember where things at, what's going on. That's right. And so, at some point, this is this is not like an insane idea that there's this that there's this linearity that that has these dramatic elements right. to it right but when that becomes the uh the dogma of no that is what is happening in these texts right. across these texts right. you're saying that they lose their the particularity of each text and and also that texts are doing different things different storytellers are doing different things with story and that's right um yeah okay yeah i think i think uh, i mean of course you know we're professors, we say things right. that are strong, and then we back off and nuance them. I mean, I, I would say, of course, even in, within poetic construals, there is such a thing as narrative poetry, mm. poetry that sort of tells a story, but it tells it very differently than a pure narrative, pure like a novel. It, it right, tells right. it very differently. It has all these poetic qualities to it. And the poetic qualities include things like tension and uh, coherence conflict and continuity, um, imagery, metaphor, and, and at a density level that goes beyond what the normal like prose kind of account mm -hmm. would include. So yeah, I think you could say, you could, in, in my own judgment, talk about scripture as a kind of narrative poem, if you will. Mm -hmm. I, I think that I would myself think of it less as a narrative poem and more of a lyric sequence, a sequence of poems. And that is a way that a poet constructs a kind of plot or tells a kind of story or makes a kind of argument, namely by arranging the poems in a certain order. But what's interesting and to me, I think, crucial about that kind of construal versus a more linear, simplistic, linear building action narrative kind of idea is that in a, in a lyric sequence, each poem retains its self-sufficient integrity and contribution to the whole in a way that sometimes chapters in a book don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, once you finish with a certain chapter that's kind of offered something crucial to the plot, you kind of don't need that chapter anymore. It's sort of subservient to this plot. Mm -hmm. But in a, in a sequence of poems, each poem is, is self-contained. It contributes something, but it's really also is making a real profound contribution in and of itself. And I think that piece is what's missing in most Bible as story construals. You don't really need Song of Songs. You don't really need Job. You don't really need Ecclesiastes. You might need a couple prophets, but in the in the you know fall creation fall etc. I mean, you don't even need anything after Genesis three for the most part. Right. I right? just dump to Matthew. Well, and to put this within a book, it, it's it's almost like saying. Um, we need Exodus one through fourteen, but we don't need Exodus fifteen. You know the Song of the Sea, yeah, which did, actually right, Exodus right. fifteen gives you information about Exodus fourteen that you didn't right. get from Exodus fourteen alone. Or and you don't really need Leviticus. You can say you need Leviticus because right. of Hebrews, but you don't really need it. Like not, you don't need it in your <laughs> sacred book. You can like yeah. access it on the internet. Thank goodness for the Epistle to the Hebrews. Otherwise, nobody <laughs> would care about Leviticus. What a save. 
want to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in the end here, these lies that your preacher has told you, I, I hear bleeding into this conversation using the metaphor you've been using is, is it's not necessarily even outright factual problems. Um, right. It's, it's a lot of dispositions towards how God has revealed himself through his prophets over time. Go, going back to Hebrews, yeah, yeah, various yeah. times and ways God has revealed yeah. himself. Right. And it's, I think it's, so. I think it's like, uh, it's, it's not, I mean, that's why I call mistruths. I mean, I think that they're not all wrong. Right. I mean, you can find things, um, you know, one of these chapters is the Old Testament has been rendered permanently obsolete. That's mistruth three. And you can look at texts from Hebrews, you know, and what is right. old is passing away. You know what right. I mean? And uh, you can find texts that support such mistruths. The problem is the mistruth is not the whole truth. Right. It's just partially the truth. There, in, in that sense, I say in the beginning of the book that, you know, misinformation, partial information is in some ways a greater threat to truth than than lying you know um liars and i'm building off this philosopher frankfurt harry frankfurt at this point liars know the truth they just misrepresent it on purpose but 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 people who don't care about the truth they don't care about the truth they care about how good they look or whatever Mm. um spin doctors politicians maybe maybe preachers at times right um so it's not like these mistruths are completely wrong it's just that they're not completely right and it's and and where they get things wrong is where i'm worried um, that, that, that the whole shebang goes astray. I mean, if, if someone, there's a sense in which it's true. In other words, that the old Testament is someone else's mail. I mean, hmm. Christians should not be cavalier in the, th- in the sense that, you know, everything from Genesis to Malachi was written immediately for us Christians. I mean, we share that material with Jews and, and we also share it to some degree with Muslims, right. right. Um, but particularly with, with the synagogue. And so, yes, in some ways, it's someone else's mail. But, but no, in another way, it's not someone else's mail. I mean, just like Corinthians. Corinthians is someone else's mail. I don't mm. live in Corinth. Yeah. Um, but maybe I kind of do, you know? And, and so if I kind of do, if Paul's words to Corinthians can, can mean to me now, so also can Jeremiah's and, you know, Isaiah's, et cetera. So there's a truth, and it's not originally to me. It's not originally my mail, but in, but the more important thing is, yes, it actually is my mail. And mm-hmm. if I don't think of it as my mail, I, I've got a serious problem on my hands in terms of thinking about Scripture as a word of address to me. You know, so. Well, Dr. Brentstrom, thank you so much for your wisdom, uh, and I hope all preachers and those who listen to sermons are duly terrified by your admonitions. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun to chat. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.